Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. How are you? Finally, good great, Jeff. Yeah. Good Morning, to see you. Todd, sit down. We've been working hard on this, and we've really pulled out all the stops. Look what we got. Origination. We did $20 million last year. We think we can do $120 million this year. Trading. We did $10 million last year. We think we can do 64 this year. This is the key. We're going to move from mark-to-market accounting to something I call HFV, hypothetical future value accounting. Whoa! If we do that, we can add a gazillion dollars to the bottom line. Whoa, Jeff! All right, that sounds fantastic. Oh, Jeff, thank you. That's just superb performance. And you're going to go far, my boy. Probably president of the company one day. You think so? I think! Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gazdavi at Cena Now on all social media. Justin Williams is here, justinwilliamscomedy.com. As always, please be sure to hit us up on the text community line 412-285-1255. April 22nd will be the end of this first season of Fraudsters. We're going to have a happy hour rap party. It may not be during the happy hour hours, but we will be happy and it will be an hour and we will be partying. Justin, how are you? I'm good. I just uh, actually made a gazillion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very happy about that. Believe it or not, that was Enron's attempt at a parody sketch for their internal company, like like party or whatever. That's how they make jokes. They make jokes about fictional accounting processes that are built on top of the already fictional accounting that they do. <laughs> yeah. I like it when someone tries to parody themselves with their beyond parody. I'm yeah. sure we're going to find a tape of Enron guys going, how much did we make in California today? Like a gazillion. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that tape does exist. And you know, the, you know, the, like the people in that were just like from the local like uh, improv Olympic or whatever. <laughs> the local yeah. short form improv group. We've got the comedy sports C team in this sketch. <laughs> Well, last week, Justin, we introduced a few fraudsters, right? We got Ken Lay, raised as a poultry war criminal, who became CEO and chairman of Enron. Louis Burgett, the Russian-speaking New Yorker who almost had Enron on the hook for 84 million barrels of oil and a billion in losses until they bluffed their way into losing only about 100 million. Andy Fastow, the double-breasted suit-wearing CFO who was the artisan of thousands of SPEs, or Raptors as, as they call them. These were independent entities that were used to offload all of Enron's losses. And by independent, by the way, we mean run by the CFO of Enron, Andy Fastow. And of course, Richard Causey, who was the chief accounting officer who signed off on all these deals. Whew. That was a mouthful. That was a lot of frosters in just one episode. This is why everyone just says Enron, and they call the smartest guys in the room, whatever. There's just so many, and we have more. We're not even covering all the people. Yeah, we're not even getting to Dick Jones, who later went on to be CEO of Omni Consumer Products in Detroit, Michigan. (laughs) Deep cut RoboCut reference. There we go. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, Justin, today we, we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about a special fraudster from Enron, Jeff Skilling, the guru, COO to Extreme Sports Tour Guide to CEO of Enron, Jeff Skilling. 
you know when you work for Enron, you're going to see the newest thinking. You're going to see the newest products, the newest uh, services. You're going to see the newest markets opening up, the newest ways of thinking about things. A lot of organizations like to stamp out the uh, nonconformist, the nonconventional thinker. But a lot of times, they're the people that really are the future because they're thinking about things differently. They come up with new ideas. In the smartest guys in the room, McLean and Elkind uh, describe skilling beautifully. And I, I think it's just best if I just read it from the smartest guys in the room. I'll read it here. When people describe skilling, they don't just use the word smart. They use phrases like incandescently brilliant or the smartest person I've ever met. Justin, I've literally never described a human being or anything as incandescently anything other than a light bulb. No, I, I described my wife. I remember when I first saw that Edison bulb look on her face. <laughs> I fell in love immediately. <laughs> love at first switch. Well, they go, they go on to describe him. In the late 1980s, Skilling wasn't a physically striking man. He was smallish, a little pudgy, and balding. But his mental agility was breathtaking. He could process information and conceptualize new ideas with blazing speed. He could instantly simplify high complex issues into a sparkling, compelling image. And he presented his ideas with a certainty that bordered on arrogance and brooked no dissent. He used his brain power not just to persuade, but to intimidate. Skilling was like this, I guess, arrogant, charismatic savant of some kind. But he was a typical looking white executive guy. Yeah, it's like kind of like in the NFL. Like if there's like a like a young like a younger white male coach, he'll always be like a considered like an offensive genius. But like a guy like Mike Tomlin, uh, well, has never been described as a genius once, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. and he'll never they, be described as a genius in his entire career. They only call them players a players coach. He's a players yeah, coach. They, they always call him a players wow. coach, but it's just like a young white guy with a like clipboard that runs like one trick play they're like <laughs> he has revolutionized the game he, he is, is a, a phenom yeah <laughs> well skilling actually grew up slightly better off than ken lay but not by much uh, skilling's family was just at the poverty line and he was actually born in pittsburgh so sad as a pittsburgher myself but he was born in 53 his father was a salesman for a company that made large valves for heavy machinery but interestingly enough, we didn't see any major traumatic events or shame that would drive him into a tunnel vision path of success like Ken Lay was, right? Well, actually, well, I, I, I dug it up. And he actually, even though he's from Pittsburgh, he grew up a Browns fan. Oh, there we go. That'll do, shame. that'll do it. That'll do it. <laughs> but he was a loner at school, maybe because he was a Browns fan. But his, his older brother, though, was the popular one who did all the morning announcements and like was much more charismatic than Jeff. And one friend described Jeff Skilling in high school as, quote, a tortured soul. Let me tell you, you describe a kid in high school like that now, they do not become CEO of a company. Ooh. But Skilling got a taste for investing, actually, when he was a sophomore in college. He had been working a lot, and he put $15,000 into the company his dad was working for and got in around $8 per share. Now, this stock popped and went all the way up to $25. But our man Jeff didn't get out. He didn't sell high. He bought low but didn't sell high. He doubled down and went and borrowed money against the stock he owned to buy a car because you got to live rich to be rich. And can you just feel what's about to happen to him here? The stock tanks all the way back down to $2, and he has to sell all of his shares to cover his losses. But he didn't quit. Once you go broke once, it's best to try to go broke again so that you really understand how money works. One time, after he was in a terrible work accident, he got put in a body cast for three months. He took the $3,500 that he got from workers' comp, leveraged it three to one, that means he borrowed three times as much as that $3,500. So a little over $10,000, he went and bought in bonds. He was betting that interest rates would go down. But at that time, they just kept rising. And soon, all of his money there 
got cleaned out, and he gets wiped out again twice in one year. I don't know where this kid's getting all this disposable income, but he's managed to do something with it. I like it that he was in the full body cast that like only exists in like sitcoms <laughs> and perhaps uh, like pro wrestling. But he's still in college, though. He's still learning his lesson, whereas some kids would probably put that money to tuition. He is actually thinking about his next moves. He went to school for engineering, right? But he was getting a 2.6 GPA in his classes. But then this little genius switches to business classes and starts getting a 4.0. I don't know what that says about business classes, but, you know, engineering is hard. Either way you cut it. Business classes, as a business major, are fucking easy, okay? You should be able to do well in business school, no matter who you are. (laughs) This guy, though, he found his stroke in business school. His first job in 1975 after school was for First City National Bank, and he ended up making $22,000 a year and was the youngest officer at the bank. This guy, though, I tell you, somehow got the confidence. I don't know where he got it. Maybe it was that he was doing well in business school, or maybe he was channeling his brother, but something woke up inside of him, and he applied for Harvard Business School, which is like, you're supposed to be a wealthy kid or from some sort of power lineage to get into this school. He's just a guy from Pittsburgh that did well in business school, but he had that energy, and the dean, during the interview process, asked him, Straight up, are you smart? And you know what he said? He goes, quote, I'm fucking smart. And then he gets in. That's how you get into Harvard, guys. Just tell him you're fucking smart, bro. Bro. (laughs) I'm fucking awesome, man. I'm fucking awesome. This double market loser couldn't hack at an engineering school, got into Harvard Business School. And he ends up being a star. This is where he fucking finds his lane, man. Top 5% of his class and gets the job. A consultant for our favorite Grim Reaper company, McKinsey. Ah, yes. The glorious Grim Reaper consultants from McKinsey. The invisible hand of chaos. McKinsey, thank you. McKinsey, you can rely on us. (laughs) Exactly. Need a government overthrown? Call us. Uh, This is where he would learn to be a ruthless and callous leader. If he had an idea at McKinsey that was better than, let's say, another consultant, and he knew it, he would verbally and intellectually browbeat you into submission. And we know how he got in Kenley's favor, right, from part one. But he would continue his relationship with Enron as a McKinsey partner. Enron is still a company that's operating, but as a McKinsey partner, he's in a special position where he's getting paid by Enron and he's giving them advice all the time about what to do and strategies. And this, at McKinsey, is where he actually made his greatest triumph for Enron before he was even an employee. This was Skilling's Akumar, like McGregor. But it wasn't him leading people through mud while being chased by the Spanish army. He built this thing called the gas bank. When he looked at the natural gas market, he thought that he could make it better. So before gas bank, uh, producers, pipelines, and local utilities, right? So the source of the energy, the pipes, and the people that administer the delivery of that gas... They would just have these long-term contracts with each other, and the prices were set by the government. But by the late 80s, we had this beautiful thing called deregulation. And everything, the rules were being taken off of everything. Government was being taken out of the equation when it came to buyers and sellers. And deregulation would continue from Reagan to Bush and in through the rest of these administrations. We also know that Ken Lay and the Bush family were very close. They were very buddy-buddy. George W. Bush would actually send birthday videos and correspondence with to Ken Lay. They loved each other. And all the birthday videos were just George Bush Sr. doing the Harlem Shake. It's very strange stuff. So, so you could hear the bones crackling. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, I just honestly, though, I can't imagine how a close relationship with a presidential family, a governor of Texas, would be of any advantage to a company that's trying to deregulate the entire energy market. I can't imagine what leg up they must have gotten from that. No, nothing to see there. But remember, guys, when you deregulate something, you take the structure away, right? And and at that time, 75% of all natural gas sold in America changed hands in a few days at the end of every month, right? So they had these contracts— the deregulation had started happening in the 80s and in through the 90s. But what they were doing was all of the trading was happening at the end of the month. So you could imagine there's fluctuations. And gas de- depends on supply and demand, right? If the weather changes, right? If there's a snowstorm coming, that's going to increase gr- the demand for gas, right? But the government used to be able to set those prices so that the price wouldn't fluctuate so much, so that it would be easier for people to have a more stabilized pricing structure for their energy needs. But Skilling didn't like the government involved in the pricing. He wanted the buyers and the sellers to price it directly. And so Enron would host the gas, bringing buyers and sellers together. Now, I'll read a little bit from McLean and Elkind, and then I'll explain this again a little bit, because this is kind of, it's really insane what they were able to do. And they, they really did make it like a bank. So here's what McLean and Elkind talk about and how they describe the gas bank. Producers acting as depositors would contract to sell their gas to Enron. Gas customers, uh, the borrowers, would contract to buy their gas from Enron. Okay, so producers would sell the gas to Enron. Uh, gas customers would borrow and would contract to buy the gas, all right? Buyers and sellers. Enron, the bank, would capture the profits between the price at which it had acquired the gas and the price at which it had promised to sell the gas. Just as a bank earns the spread between what it pays depositors and what it charges borrowers. So you're telling me that his plan was to figure out ways to pass the gas. <laughs> yes, exactly right. And when you pass the gas, you make a buck. He's making a little bit of a buck. But this I'm glad it's always good on the show when when Justin destroys himself on a joke. I'm glad you're a dad now. Your son will appreciate that joke. I always like it when I do a joke where it just shows I have no shame. <laughs> I'll do or say anything for a laugh. <laughs> Leave it all on the field. But we get this, right? Gas comes in and runs buying this gas basically, and they're finding people to sell the gas to. And whatever the difference is, they're making a profit. This idea was a little shaky at first, but it actually managed to work. More and more producers came in and said, we'll sell you our gas, right? And more and more gas customers came in and said, hey, we'll we'll buy a contract and we'll buy the gas from you guys, just you, Enron. So this makes them a fucking super important entity in the energy market. At this point, Scaling knows that it's time to leave McKinsey, which is crazy. When you're a McKinsey partner, you're making like a million dollars a year, easy. And he actually leaves McKinsey and gets the job at Enron to run the gas bank. First of all, leaving McKinsey as a partner is like leaving the high order of assassins, right? And he did it for a pay cut down to $275,000, right? But we all know that it wasn't just his salary that he was getting. And I just learned about this thing that he also got. It was called phantom equity. And basically that business unit, Skilling became a shareholder And so if that division at Enron, the gas bank, did well, so did he. So you can imagine all this natural gas is moving through the gas bank and he's making money every time it does well. So this all seems great here, right? But here is where we sprinkle in a little bit of that capitalism crack. The contracts that these buyers, right, these producers and these gas customers, these contracts that they made to buy and sell gas, those themselves could be traded like oil. Remember the futures stuff that we talked about? All right, so if you trade, it's not just input-output, it's, oh, let's speculate. Let's make these contracts about the future price of natural gas, and let's arbitrage on them. Let's do all this crazy shit. Let's have a great time. Let's fucking go. Unlike oil, though, natural gas flows 24 hours a day. doesn't get shipped in barrels. It's always going, which means they're always making money. Skilling, though, after the success of Gas Bank, 
he's able to basically do anything. He uses his position as head of Enron Finance to push accounting to start using, we all know this, mark to market. It's what you heard at the beginning. They were even making a joke about it. From mark to market to this weird HFV thing. That's a joke, obviously, but it's a joke based on the fact that mark to market is such an absurdly positive and beneficial thing for their company where they're basically making up value out of thin air. Mark to mark is very uh, positive. I would also say that Marky Mark's good vibrations is also absurdly positive. Very positive, yes. So our friend deregulation wasn't done yet. The 80s saw new markets crop up everywhere, and in the 90s, it kept on rolling. California's energy was special, though. This is where much of the computing industry was, and it was creating all the future things that we have today that are dismantling the very existence that we've grown to love. And and all of that computing power obviously takes energy. But California still had really strict environmental laws. So they couldn't just start building power plants to like fund all these new technology startups. But what that also meant was there was more demand on the system in California and less supply. So when you have more demand, less supply in energy, and you just deregulated the energy market, well, my friend, you just put some blood in the motherfucking water. Mm. So to talk more about that, I want to bring in someone that knows a lot about deregulation and what happened around that time, especially in California, than I do. Harvey Rosenfield is the founder of Consumer Watchdog and has been an advocate for consumer issues for years. And he's especially focused on things like the deregulation of the energy market in California. Harvey, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, I just want to dive in. You're a consumer advocate. What exactly is that? And can I send you my credit card bill for you to lower my interest rate? Uh as powerful as we are as a nonprofit organization, we do not have the power to lower your interest rate, although I'm sure without even looking at it, it should be lower. Well, nobody's perfect, Harvey. So what is it that, that a consumer advocate does and what does your organization do to give us a little bit of a, of a feel for where you're coming from? Well, a consumer advocate is somebody who tries to uh, represent the interests of consumers and a consumer watchdog, for example, which is the organization uh, that I'm with. I founded it in 1985. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. And we fight in the courts, we fight in the legislature. We try to protect people against really bad stuff that happens to them in in any field, whether it's insurance, banking, privacy, 
electricity, any area of industry that might be involved, we try to protect them. Sometimes it's a matter of defending consumers against a bad idea. Sometimes it's a matter of proposing a really good idea, trying to get the legislature or here in California, the voters under California's fabled initiative process to adopt it. Awesome. And and when you mean by the initiative process, you mean you could put up something for the entire state of California to vote on. So it's direct democracy in that way. It's direct democracy. It's 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 been an amazing it can be a good thing, it could be a bad thing, but California has a very rich history of people revolting against the status quo, being unable to get anything through the legislature because the our elected officials are too beholden to the industry involved. And so we can go around the legislature, put it on the ballot. It's not an easy process, but at the end of the day, then the voters decide and take matters into their own hands and make their own laws. So we're talking about Enron on our series here, and that holds a special place, and I'm sure your heart and many consumer advocates' hearts, especially Californians. And part of that, the backdrop of that, is the deregulation that happened in the 90s. Can you take us back to when that bill was passed? And there was a paper you wrote, and I want to read a quote from Pete Wilson here in a second, but... Take us back to what was that legislation and, you know, deregulation, we get it, right? It's like they took the regulations away, but what were the regulations they took away? Well, this is a special situation that until then we'd never seen before. So the energy industry, the utility companies, Enron and similar energy traders and Wall Street all got together, proposed that Californians needed to have, quote, competition when it comes to electricity. Now, obviously, you know, the average person never woke up one morning and said, God, I really don't like the electricity I'm getting right now. I, I think I'll try some other electricity. <laughs> you know, it's it was provided as part of a utility. It was a monopoly. Yeah, there were problems with it. You know, they were regulated by politicians or po- political appointees. But this new legislation in 1996 in the California legislature proposed to, quote, deregulate electricity. And of course, what's in it for me? Well, me, the consumer, we were told that we were going to get lower electricity prices. And and who wouldn't want that? What's in it for the people who were behind electricity deregulation, the Enrons, the energy industry, Wall Street, more profits. Why did the legislature even entertain such an idea when nobody was asking for it other than Wall Street and these companies? Because what was in it for the politicians was money, campaign contributions. So you have the you have the money factor, promises to consumers, money to politicians, huge, enormous potential profits to the uh, energy industry. A lot of this deregulation stuff talks about choice. And I and I when I think about choice, I think about how my wife and I will try to watch something on Netflix and the abundance of choice that we have is paralyzing. So choice in that situation, not very helpful. But to your point, I've never woken up any morning and been like, you know what? I am upset with the type of electricity that's coming into my home. We got to do something about this. I'm going to make it my mission. And so can you give us just a couple of the line items? Like what was a line item from the deregulation bill that uh, created the kind of chaos that ensued afterwards? That bill was one, was a bill that was so long and complicated that almost nobody in the legislature understood it. But but what it did in a nutshell was phase in the elimination of, of state government regulation of the rates that electricity utilities could charge. And you were given the right if you wanted to. Let's say I didn't want to stick with my uh, Southern California Edison or Pacific Gas and Electric utility. I could quote buy electricity from some other company. Now, as it turned out, of course, that other company's not going to put in a brand new set of electricity lines to my home. So basically, it was the same kind of same form of energy called electricity coming in through the same utilities uh, lines, but it was just from some other company and allegedly it was going to be less expensive. And then they did something that was real, seen that they did something really really tricky and it came back to bite them right in the butt. They were so greedy and that th- they knew that in an in a competitive marketplace the big utilities in California would never be able to lower the price of electricity because they were in they had invested in the most expensive form of electricity 
you can find, which is electricity generated by nuclear power plants. Those power plants were boondoggles from day one. And so as part of deregulation, the utility companies got the legislature to agree that the consumers in the state would pay a transition tax. That's what, they, that's what showed up on your bill, uh, your utility bill every month. And that tax was basically a bailout of the big utility companies' investments in nuclear power. So basically, we paid off those investments in order to get lower competitive market prices for electricity. But Harvey, Governor Pete Wilson in 1996 said, and this is from your paper, you quoted him here, okay? You're going you're gonna to call this guy a liar, apparently, because what he said, he said, this landmark legislation is a major step in our efforts to guarantee lower rates, provide consumer choice, and offer reliable service so no one literally is left in the dark. We've pulled the plug on another outdated monopoly and replaced it with the promise of a new era of competition. Now, let me just point out, this is in 1996. Governor Pete Wilson, I think, is the first person to use the word literally to mean absolutely nothing. And so what ended up happening here is everyone's prices went up in California. Is that right? How much money did Californians have to spend after this bill came into effect? So the bill came into effect in 1996. I think only one person voted against it in the entire legislature, and it was scheduled to take effect in 2000. And yes, I am going to call Pete Wilson a liar. I'm going to call him a shameful, despicable liar, uh, because suddenly in the, in the middle of winter in 2000, the electricity went off all over California. Those harsh Californian winters. It's just really, it, the palm trees were shivering. And then and, and then it, it just happened to coincide with the to implementation of the deregulation law from four years earlier. So power plants were taken offline. A shortage were, uh, occurred. And under deregulation, the prices went through the roof, like up by 4,000 percent almost overnight. And some of the utility companies realized that they couldn't actually afford to pay for that electricity <laughs> and they couldn't and they were threatened with bankruptcy so they they just turned off the switch and uh, for a lot of people but it was mostly the the shortages led to what we called blackout blackmail where unless the state coughed up the money to keep the utility companies in business and pay off the wall street traders who were voraciously uh, sucking money out of California illegally, the state would go into the darkness, just like Pete Wilson said it wouldn't. But people had the choice, Harvey. What about the choices that they were going to have? They had these choices, and, and, and the competition is supposed to be better for the consumer. <laughs> you, you know, but you went to that switch on the wall, and you try to turn on the light, and you, you didn't have a choice. It, it was off. Ugh. And the prices went through the roof. And remember I told you about that bailout of the nuclear power plants? Well, as it turns out, the way the utility companies wrote that, it actually prevented them from increasing the price of electricity to California consumers beyond a certain point. In order, in other words, what they did deceitfully to force us to bail them out actually ended up preventing them from recouping the 3,900% increase in electricity prices once the Enron traders started wheeling and dealing and creating these phony shortages. So the result was that the, the utility companies were facing a, a political power blackout themselves. So let's talk about Enron now, because it seems like in 2000, Enron now is like at its peak. It's probably, I think at this point, the seventh biggest company in America. It is in Fortune magazine as like the most innovative company multiple time after time after time. Uh, what was their role in all of this and how did they work with the utility companies to create these blackouts? Enron was one of the leaders of the uh, national push for deregulation in states across the country. And you mean deregulation as a whole is like a philosophy in general, right? Well, no, I mean specifically about electricity deregulation. Got it. And they, it was considered an innovative strategy to get legislatures to deregulate control over utility rates. And so they set themselves up as the lead 
proponent of electricity deregulation. And so they were ready to go when it kicked in in, in 2000, in early 2000, uh, to, to take advantage of it. And they had set up an entire building, I think it was in Texas, where you know hordes of, quote, energy traders manipulated the supply and demand of electricity in order to take a cut and make a profit. And prices were being manipulated. Turned out much later, after the government finally figured it out, and got involved and began to investigate that they had, they were doing things like selling electricity that should have stayed in California to other states to create a shortage, or they owned power plants. Enron had investments in power plants that they took offline on inexplicable outages. And the result of this was uh, these machinations were that the, and the, and there were recordings, Sina, there were recordings uh, that the uh, government later obtained of traders talking with each other. I can't even repeat them because they were loaded with expletives. But let me just put this way. They were saying, let's F Grandma Millie in, in Los Angeles. They were gleeful. At one point, one of the power plant caught fire, allegedly, and they said, burn, burn baby, burn. Baby, burn. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Because when plants went offline, for whatever reason, legal or illegal, uh, pr- prices went up. So they they created the the quote competitive marketplace for electricity that would allow them to manipulate the price, create shortages, and and soak California for what turned out to be about seventy billion dollars. Okay, so let me see if I got this right here. So in California, before the deregulation happened, there was a limit on the amount that a utility could presumably charge someone or the rate in which they could charge someone for electricity, right? That's what we got so far. Deregulation comes in, and and in 2000, what happens is we're just going to let the magical, wondrous world of the market fix everything and these this this arbitrary limit is actually going to fluctuate and it's going to make it better for the consumer companies are going to run more efficiently because as as you said before deregulation the utility companies did have some problems they maybe weren't run so well a bunch of like politician sons and daughters were running these these joints and so they needed to like figure some stuff out but the pendulum swung so far the other way that the price now went up and down Well, yes, you've just explained it exactly correctly. Although under deregulation, it really never went down. It only (laughs) went up. That's the only that's the only (laughs) caveat I would say in how you explained it. Before before deregulation, the the there were government appointees who were in charge of uh, and the companies had to request a rate increase and they would it would be reviewed to make sure it was justified. That was thrown overboard along with everything, all other forms of regulation, uh, when the legislature passed deregulation, and then it, it, the, you know, it went up, constantly soared after that. And so those couple things that you pointed out that Enron was actually doing, and along with some other energy traders as well, they would buy and sell energy, all kinds of different energy. But if we're talking about electricity here, they could actually say to a utility company, hey, can you send this X amount of electricity to Nevada instead of California? Is that what they did? They, they shipped it out of state? It, it wasn't so much, my recollection of it was that, it, that, they, that the traders were sending the electricity from power plants that they had bought from the utilities. Got it. Part of deregulation was the uh, um, utility companies sort of became less involved in their in the production of power and more just involved in transmission of power. I see. So that's really important. So that's there's one part of the energy pipeline that is the source, like the power plant itself. The right. uh, kind of utility company part is the, this is what you see on your letterhead when you get your bill. This is how the pipes and the wires and all of the little uh, stuff that, that the electricity is going through, that's how it gets to your home. And that's the, the, front, the consumer facing part of it. But you're telling me that Enron bought the power plants, the supply side. So all of a sudden, if they, I don't know, wanted to sleep in one day and not turn the lights on, they could do that. That's right. Or if, quote, an accident happened and suddenly that power plant had a problem and had to be taken offline, Enron could do that and did. 
Well, but Harvey, couldn't if someone's lights didn't turn on from one company, couldn't they just call up the another company and get lights on that day? Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. You know, the way the market worked, it, you know, the price soared for everybody. And, uh, and, and no, you couldn't arrange, gee, I think I'd like to go back to the old way and, you know, flip the switch, turn the dial back, flip the switch. And no, you didn't have that. Cho- you have any choice then. So then I'm, we had no choice. I'm being pretty flip about it, but this was this was disastrous for Californians. And and what was the impact? You mentioned seventy billion dollars of 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 money that consumers in California had to pay up, basically from the increases in the rates. What were some of the other damages or, or victims of these rolling blackouts? Well, I mean, you know, businesses were having trouble. Uh, uh, residences, people who, you know, regular people just were having trouble paying their bills. When you have to choose, you know, between putting bread on the table or paying the utility bill, that's a problem. And what happened was, at a certain point, we advocated that the governor of California, whose name was Gray Davis at the time, seize the power plants back under eminent domain. But he, uh, like many other politicians, did not want to offend Wall Street by doing something as communistic as seizing uh, these renegade power plants. So that that option was, you know, never exercised. The, uh, he ended up <laughs> he ended up negotiating a deal for I think it was about forty billion dollars in long term electrical energy from these same companies far higher than it had been before. And then the way they decided to pay for that is they put another charge on people's utility bill. Uh, They got Wall Street involved. Wall Street basically turned these contracts into uh, securities. And for the next 20 years, I think we're just ending the payoff of those tens of billions of dollars in electricity contracts that Governor Gray Davis bought for us under pressure, under with a gun to his head, uh, back in uh, 2000, 2001. Wait, he bought, he was getting hosed by the electric uh, traders and the utilities. And so his solution was to pay them money to what? Keep a fixed rate or a fixed price on something? He went to them and said, how do I keep the lights on? AKA, how do I keep my career in politics. That didn't work out. And the energy companies eventually agreed to sell him uh, a package of electricity contracts that would last for 20 years at a fixed price in exchange for a vast 
amount of money that and so he you know he wanted to be able to say well i i bought the electricity you needed to keep your lights on but the price the price was hidden on your utility bill for 20 years did people miss that no they didn't this is like when my car was stolen and i found the person that stole my car and they were like sure would he i'd be happy to give you this car i stole you could just pay me 10 times what this car was worth and you could have it back and i just gave her the money because i am an idiot i'm completely yeah, that's that's basically that is basically how it went down <laughs> let me buy my electricity back from the guy who the people who stole it from me yeah so oh god this is every little thing i learn about these guys still makes my head spin in the beginning can you kind of take me to like that beginning point when deregulation kind of happened and everything started fluctuating? Because from what I've read, it seemed like Gray Davis and, and a lot of the politicians didn't know what the, the market was being manipulated at first. They thought like, oh, I guess this is uh, what the market does. <laughs> like I said, you know, uh, it was a feast for the lobbyists in Sacramento, California, uh, when the legislature almost unanimously passed that deregulation bill in 1996. A lot of money was spread around to the politicians. Then four years later, you know, the lights go off, the prices go up. I mean, and we all knew what was going on. I, the politicians, the Pete Wilsons, the Gray Davises. I mean, I felt bad for Gray Davis. It wasn't his fault. He wasn't there when the law was passed, but nobody wanted to admit the reality and nobody knew what to do about it. I mean, they were really paralyzed. You know, it has a it, it bore a lot of resemblance to what I'd call the mother of all deregulation debacles, which was the Great Recession of 2008. You could probably mm. fit a whole nother show or 10 yeah. on that. But the Enrons of the world and the politicians, when they get together, uh, we're all in trouble. Yeah, that's true. They they are like the evil Justice League, right? They are. <laughs> like... Actually, that's a pretty good analogy because, you know, Thanos, what, didn't he just snap his fingers and half the people disappeared? I mean, that's what that's what happened here in California. Somebody, one of the Enron snapped its fingers and the lights went off and the prices went up. Gray Davis, he didn't get reelected. Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governator after Gray Davis, mainly because of this energy crisis. Is there a relation to how Arnold became into power on the heels of all this and how he was related to Enron in any way? Absolutely. In fact, uh, Governor Davis didn't lose an election when he was up for re-election. He was recalled by the right. voters because his performance was so bad like, you know how we were talking about the initiative process in California, voters putting things on the ballot. One of the things you can put on the ballot here is basically a referendum on the current governor. And uh, so that was angry voters placed a recall referendum on the ballot. And uh, Davis was recalled in 2003, largely because of his terrible performance on, on handling the deregulation debacle. What is a more metaphorical sign that you're doing a bad job when you can't keep the lights on? There's really nothing else. Yeah. There's just, nothing. that's it. You can't do that. Exactly. What more can we, you do? It, we we kind of said the voters flipped the switch on Gray Davis. Oh, that's right. I think I remember that. And then Schwarzenegger yeah. came in. So here we are now. Uh, it's, uh, you know, Enron went down in 2001. It's 2021 now. Many of the Enron executives, you know, Ken Lay passed away. Skilling, I think, is out of prison now. Uh, Andy Fastow is doing a speaking tour, uh, like a mea culpa thing, and he's doing all this stuff. Uh, did anything change for the positive as a result of the Enron scandal and all of this coming to light? This is all a matter of public record. You're not giving me some sort of like insider or insider like secret information or anything here. This is all out there. That's correct. California placed some more controls on what the utility companies in the energy industry can do, sort of took a half step back towards regulation of rates. In the meantime, throughout the country, I mean, look what happened in Texas a couple of weeks ago because of deregulation. The combination of that and 
an unexpected storm and uh, the lights went out uh, because they hadn't built enough power plants under deregulation and the prices, people got a $16,000 energy bill for a few days worth of electricity for those power, where power stayed on. And ironically, the governor of that, the governor who presided over uh, that deregulation bill was Governor George W. Bush um, at the time, not, now the former President Bush. Um, so the, the question you ask is, do we learn anything? I think, I think the combination of events over the last 20 years since the Enron so-called, quote, crisis, the energy crisis in California, has, has led to a rethinking of deregulation. Answer your question in this context. In 2008, uh, the, our entire financial system basically collapsed because Wall Street did across the uh, economy what Enron and the energy traders did for electricity and energy uh, trading. We turned a, our economy into, a, we pushed it away from the trade of material goods and services and everything was turned into a security, like a mortgage-backed security whose value was very difficult to ascertain. And just like in the Enron case where the company went down because of its accounting practices, our entire economy went down because it had, the uh, Wall Street had been deregulated and it engaged in all these uh, accounting uh, tricks that nobody understood. And the result was, we're still living with that result, by the way, arguably that was a turning point in our nation's political uh, and certainly economic history and people still suffering from it. So the question is, have we learned anything now in, in uh, 2021? Maybe, maybe we're beginning to realize that the vaunted free market cannot be left to its own devices because uh, consumers get screwed and then everybody on Wall Street becomes wealthy. And, and you know, you have massive income inequality that is sort of gone hand in hand in our country with the deregulation of almost everything. Wow. So um, I'm going to go with a solid no. We haven't learned anything. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I guess that, I guess that's fair. That's correct. I'm just teasing. No, that was a perfect answer. Yeah. And I think it does warrant uh, an explanation that provides the context for the world and the political and economic climate that we live in. And that's what's so important. And it's one of those things where, energy crisis, yes, financial collapse, yes, we kind of understand uh, it in the abstract. We understand the feeling that it get, that it creates in us, but we don't really get into the weeds on why it happened and what were the fundamental levers that were pulled to create something like this. And we don't need to all have MBAs or PhDs in economics to figure this stuff out. This is just basic lying. This is basic just... The guy who stole your car is trying to sell it back to you for 10 times the value. You know, that's a real profound thing you said a moment ago, because people are told by these big industries, well, it's just too complicated for you to understand. Just trust us. And a lot of people don't have the time uh, or the expertise. I mean, we're, I feel very fortunate to be able to be part of a nonprofit organization that devotes itself to understanding what's going on and protecting people against these scams and schemes. And it's no different than somebody, at a, a used car salesman selling you a junker and, to, and that, that falls apart a week after you buy it. I mean, in California, there's some decent consumer protections against that. But what there aren't always protections against is these high level, corporate level, executive suite crimes that, that actually devastate the economy and people within it. Uh, and, uh, you know, m most folks don't see it coming. The politicians, as they say, there's this symbiotic relationship. Let me, let me say that for, talk about that for a sec. The politicians are always a part of the deregulation scheme. And, and part of the problem is that the United States Supreme Court deregulated uh, money in politics a few years back in the infamous uh, Citizens United case, where the United States Supreme Court held that corporations are human beings for purposes of the First Amendment, and thus the First Amendment protects the corporations' corporations' right to spend as much money as they want in politics. That's freedom of corporate expression: is the expenditure is giving money to politicians, and as a result of that, 
the politicians make bad choices. They're our elected representatives. They're supposed to be the ones to figure this out for us. Instead, they're almost always in the pocket of some industry. And it's a, it's a pitched battle every day to protect Americans against their elected officials. Harvey, thank you. Where where can people, if they want to know the work you're you're doing uh, and the organizations you're involved with, where can people find you? Uh, go to consumerwatchdog.org. That's all one word, consumerwatchdog.org. Most of what I've discussed is available there. You can just Google it there or just go to Google and Google Consumer Watchdog Energy Crisis Deregulation Bailout. Under another organization's umbrella, I helped work on a report on the 2008 collapse of our economy, how Wall Street and Washington betrayed America. So, you know, sadly, these things are repeating themselves and, and it's all available on the web. You're such an engaging speaker. So thank you. I really we really love it when smart, engaging people are on the show. Well, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. And thank you for your work. Lord, I mean, we just yell into microphones and make fun of people and try to like learn about this <laughs> stuff. And you're doing the real frontline work. So we really appreciate it. These things are life and death things. Never mind what happened in Texas where people were freezing and stuff. You know, lax regulation led to the crash of two 737s, right? The 737 MAX. Um, driverless cars. Here's something for another thing. It's on the horizon. You know, you kind of heard it here first. The, uh, the agency that uh, Ralph Nader, the preeminent consumer advocate of the 20th century, as I was telling Hazel, got Congress to pass an auto safety agency in the 60s. Uh, when the during the Trump administration, driverless uh, vehicles started to be proposed. The agency is required by law to regulate all vehicles, but they said, "No, we're not going to regulate driverless vehicles." So you've got all these vehicles on the on the road. Nobody knows how they work. Nobody knows what algorithms they use. Like if 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 the Tesla sees you walking across the street with your family. And then they see also a little kid at the, on the other side of the street and the Tesla has to choose which one to hit. They have an algorithm. It just, nobody knows what it is. So all this stuff is supposed to be regulated. It's not, it's life-threatening. And I mean, uh, you know, that's why I think uh, the work that uh, we do at Consumer Watchdog and that I've done at these other organizations will continue forever because it never ends. So that's how deregulation works. And I think Harvey really put it in context for us, right? Because I mean, things were just so insane and in how that all worked out. But, you know, Justin, on this show, we love to just we like to talk to the experts, but we also want to find out what happened on the inside. And we actually have someone that was on the inside of this trading scheme that watched it happen in real time. Next week, we will talk to Colin Whitehead who was a trader on the energy desk out of Portland, Oregon, during the California energy crisis. So that's going to be a really fun interview, and we've got more stuff around that as well. But as we wind down the season, we're building out our website. We're also building out our merch, and we want to get fan art from you guys and potentially use it as one of our shirts. Now, of course, we'll pay you if we end up using the fan art, but anything you guys send us, we'll be happy to post on our social media pages and tag you and give you credit and stuff like that. But if we end up choosing yours to buy it, we'll we'll pay you for it. You'll probably get some notes from me, Hazel and Justin and like so like, you know, make me like make my nose not so big, but that'll be something that we could talk about later. But send us whatever you want. Fraudsterslpn at gmail.com. You can always text us uh, stuff at 412-285-1255. Yeah, it should be should be fun. So thanks everyone for listening to part two of our Enron series. We've got two more episodes of this. I'm so excited to bring them to you. It's gonna, it's only going to get crazier. As always, thank you, Hazel Bryan, for the producing, Marie Anderson on the edit, Hannah Shaw for the for the legal research, uh, Emily Fusco for uh, the general research. And a big thanks to Harvey Roosevelt, who's out here in California, and I'm going to go hang out and have a drink with him at some point. So big thanks to Harvey. Can't wait to have you back on the show for some other deregulated, crazy consumer advocacy piece that we'll probably do in the future. And of course, this has been a production of Last Podcast Network and Zero Cool Media. Listening to your favorite podcast? 
That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University, that's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.